You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from Associate Pastor Ash Meany. Well, we're continuing this morning on our series of uh, encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the more uncomfortable and challenging encounters that happens. In chapters 13 and 14, the disciples gather with Jesus for their final meal together. And up until this point, Jesus had been the strong shepherd, leading his people and performing miracles. He commanded nature by ordering the wind and calming the seas. He stood his ground defending himself in complex arguments with religious authorities and leaders. He spoke with power of truth and the last and greatest of his miracles was raising Lazarus from death to life. Gear spoke on this last week. I recommend you download that talk, listen to that talk. And as he enters Jerusalem, the people sing out over him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. To those who follow him, he appears to be the great prophet, perhaps even the promised Messiah. And more and more people were beginning to believe that he'd be the one who would drive out the Romans by force and liberate Israel back into their position as God's chosen people. They were hoping he would raise up an army, a political party, a force that would drive Rome out and set Israel free. The expectation was that something extraordinary and powerful was about to happen. And those who were following him would rise up with him in fame and prestige and power as he did. And it's at this point, Jesus chooses to do something profoundly provocative and disturbing. And we pick up the story in John 13, 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Jesus, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Fantastic. 
Wash it all, Lord. Wash it all. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, I ask that you would open the scriptures to us this morning. That we would get a glimpse of the deeper meaning in this story, of what you're doing and what it represents and the kind of people you're calling us to become and the kind of God that you are. I pray this in your name. Amen and amen. I want to explore three deeper things that I think are going on in this simple but incredible act of humility and love. Firstly, through a simple act of washing feet, Jesus demonstrates a radical new vision of servant leadership. Secondly, he shows us a powerful picture of God's future forgiveness and cleansing. And thirdly, he gives us a provocative model of how the church, you and I, are to serve each other. Suddenly, Without a word, Jesus stands up, takes off his tunic, wraps a towel around his waist, takes a basin of water, and goes to the end of the table and kneels. He takes the feet of one of his disciples, brushes the filth and dirt off. And there was a lot of filth and dirt on their feet and washes them with water one foot at a time. When he's finished, he takes the towel, wipes the feet dry, and then he goes to the next one and does the same thing. Now, I've seen some pretty rough, ugly-looking feet in my time. Not mine. Mine are quite nice, actually. But I can't begin to describe what sort of condition the disciples' feet were in being that they wore sandals and walked everywhere they went in the culture they were in, it would have been a, 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 let's just say, not a pretty sight. And as they struggle to comprehend what Jesus is doing, the room's silent. By taking off his outer garments, there's no visible sign of hierarchy that one could signify by clothing. In Jewish culture, it was a slave's job to wash the feet of others. An inferior would wash the feet of a superior. A disciple would wash the feet of his master. A lowly person, the feet of a king. But never, never 
would a king kneel down in front of one of his subjects, nor a teacher, before his disciples to wash their feet? This was a radically confronting moment. When he finished, he asks them, do you know what I have done for you? You see, the disciples had given Jesus titles of privilege and respect. Titles of privilege and respect, which were frequently given to doctors and learned men in their culture. And once someone had been given that sort of higher title or position, they'd be tempted to look down on those who work in lower positions, on those who do menial tasks of labor and service. This kind of abuse of power was constantly going on in the culture they were in. This is what Jesus was teaching them about in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, when he says this to his followers. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is doing right now is he's putting these words into action. And instead of moving upward, lording it over his followers, taking the position of a king and power and authority above his people, he takes a completely alternative direction and path, a completely different posture, a position of the ordinary, a position of weakness, not just personally, but socially, a position of vulnerability, a position of humility, a position of a servant. This is what Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, calls the downward movement of God. Listen to how he describes it. Thus, we are deeply disturbed by a God who embodies a downward movement. Instead of striving for higher position, more power and more influence, Jesus moves, as Colbert says, from the heights to the depth, from victory to defeat, from riches to poverty, from triumph to suffering, from life to death. Jesus' whole life and mission involve accepting powerlessness and revealing in this powerlessness the limitlessness of God's love. Jesus, their Lord and teacher, the one who'd given, who they'd given everything to follow, the one who amazed them with his incredible authority and his teachings and his signs and wonders, his demonstrations of power, is now kneeling before them, as if in a relationship of submission and obedience to them. Can you imagine the discomfort that they were feeling? And in doing so, he completely subverts the normal hierarchical structures and the accepted patterns of authority are challenged, undermined, turned upside down and blown away. These social layers that every culture has, that we have, 
he completely flips upside down. This is the upside down kingdom of God. And so as they struggle to understand what's going on, it becomes an uncomfortable moment and testing and questioning of Jesus. And once again, you'll, you, you hear me say this once again, they completely misunderstand who Jesus truly is. Isn't that reassuring? There's so many times in the Gospels that they do something and, and, and they go in a particular direction after Jesus and he's over here. And, and they completely miss the plot. And Jesus sort of, you know, like, oh, geez, here's my boys again. Oh, great. You know, they, they misunderstand who Jesus is. And this should be an encouragement for us because I confess that I often misunderstand who Jesus is. I struggle sometimes to fully understand who Jesus is. Anyone here got Jesus fully? Yeah, It's a journey. It's a journey. And so often in our life, we think he's here and actually he's over here. I'm finally beginning to realize that so often when I'm confused or frustrated about what God's doing or not doing more often. It's because I've created a Jesus of my own making. We cannot help but create a Jesus of our own making. And I expect him to behave in the ways I want him to behave. Lord, just get it together, please. So often, I want him to do things my way and in my timing, the timing that I choose. But unfortunately, just every now and again, Jesus doesn't listen to me. It's so rude. <laughs> and just like the, the disciples, Jesus has a way of undoing our false versions of him. Anyone, can I get an amen? Is that what they say? Don't they? Don't they? Anyone know that? Good, I'm glad that's just me. That's wonderful. Yeah. Our journey of faith is one where Jesus is constantly undoing our false versions of him, our false notions of who he is and how he should behave, our Jesuses of our own making. Yes, he's the Lord. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's a miracle worker. Yes, he's a healer. Yes, he's a wonderful counselor. Yes, he hears our prayers. But he's also a servant leader who in an act of humility and love kneels down to wash the filthy feet of those who he loves. That's our king. That's our Lord. That's our saviour. And this act of kindness becomes a powerful picture of God's future forgiveness and cleansing. Look at this conversation between Peter and Jesus again in verses 6 to 10. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You can sense that sort of affront, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a minute. Jesus replies, you do not realize now what I'm about to do, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, wash the lot. I love Peter. His reactions are always so human. 
so human. Not just my feet, then wash my hands and my head as well. I love how he responds because he's so human in his reaction. But like Peter, we're often so impatient and quick to react when we don't understand what's going, what God's doing that we ever so slightly begin to say, Lord, thank you so much, but I think I've got this one because I think somehow you've, you've missed it. And we take back control, don't we? When things don't quite go the way we expect or want, the temptation is so easy to go, thank you so much, Lord, I got this. I wonder how often, out of impatience, or reaction to circumstances that haven't gone my way, I've taken back control from God and completely missed the opportunity to learn something about his plans and purposes for my life. Do you see what's happening here? We can so often have the tendency to misunderstand what he's doing, take back control, and in doing so, we miss the opportunity to grow in our faith. I just wonder, you know, get home. The Lord says, Ash, welcome. You know, poor mate, it's been a rough journey, hasn't it? Do you remember this when this happened? Yeah, do you remember what you did in response? Yeah, did, did you know I had, I, I had another plan? Funny that, isn't it? I got plans and purposes. God's desperate desire is that we don't take back control, but we lean into him in those moments. Maybe some of us right now are tempted to take back control of uncomfortable circumstances that God's actually using to teach us something about himself and about how he works this stuff out in our lives. These are the opportunities to press pause. These are the opportunities to go deeper in prayer. These are the opportunities to kind of wrestle with God. This is the invitation. It's at this point Jesus tells Peter, you don't realize what's going on now, but later you'll understand. Giving him a hint that there's something much deeper going on. There's something much deeper going on. There's another kind of washing he has in mind. And it's much more than just feet. This was a picture of the future grace, forgiveness, and cleansing that would take place in just a few hours. They just didn't know it. The following day, they'd understand fully, in a whole new way, the cleansing power of Christ as he offers his life up for theirs on the cross. That's when the penny would drop. There's something more going on here. You see, dirty feet... Dirty feet become the symbol of the dirt we carry inside. And the water, a symbol of God's capacity to wash us clean on the inside through his Holy Spirit. Some of us right now, maybe watching, maybe in the courtyard, maybe in the sanctuary, some of us right now have really dirty feet. Don't look down. I haven't seen your feet. And shoes and socks won't hide it. God knows. God knows. We can't cover this stuff up. 
some of us are struggling with the horrible feeling of being unclean. And the invitation of this story is to let Jesus come up to you. Let him kneel down in front of you and let him wash you clean. Let Jesus wash away the dirt. Let Jesus wash away the dirt. Listen to how David prays about this in Psalm 51. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. There is power in letting Jesus wash us clean. There is freedom. There is transformation. There is healing in letting Jesus wash us clean. There is joy. There is gladness. I know because I've had to do that multiple times. Haven't I, darling? (laughs) Don't answer. This is the invitation to make this a habit of coming to Jesus to be washed clean. This is not a one-off life moment. It's a regular habit and discipline. And finally comes these challenging words in verses 12 to 15. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now we have about 30 buckets of water at the back of church. And the first four rows, I'm just joking. (laughs) You should have seen some of your faces then. That was amazing. Quick change, quick alert. What? (laughs) Lastly, Jesus gives us a proactive model of how the church is to love and serve each other. The washing of feet becomes a radical new vision of love and service. It's a subversive love that bridges the gap that so often exists in our world between those who have success, power and authority and those who don't. It breaks through the social hierarchies, the layers of class. It breaks through the hierarchies of our culture and shows us that God doesn't have favourites. I've got some bad news. There are no VIPs or influencers in the kingdom of God. That's just not how the kingdom of God works. And Jesus wants us to signify this subversive love with humility and acts of service to each other. Some years ago in the UK, I went on a retreat hosted by a community of people 
that had disabilities. And at the end of the retreat, on the last day of the retreat, the leader of the retreat did a meditation on this verse. And then he ended by saying, now we as a community are going to wash some of your feet. And that's when I'd realized that I'd been walking, I'd gone on a sort of long walk around the grounds of the retreat center with uh, some sandals on Birkenstocks, in fact, because they are the only sandal. Um, and I, I, I went for a walk and I realized my feet were a little on the filthy side, to say the least. So that's when I sort of thought, oh Lord, please, not mine. Thankfully, I was sitting towards the back, so I thought, well, that's going to be good. I'm going to be all right. And that's when Paul, a young man with severe disabilities, came walking towards me. I thought, oh, no, not me. And he knelt down and with profound love and care, he slowly, gently began to wash my feet. And as he finished washing my first foot, he put it down. And he looked up at me. And I looked down at him. And our eyes connected. And in that moment, there was a profound sense of God's presence and love. And we just both looked at each other and wept. It was one of the most humbling and beautifully uncomfortable experiences of my life. But here's the catch. I think our journey with God should be one where we are constantly hitting against beautifully uncomfortable experiences. We're confronted by a God who humbles himself and becomes small and poor who moves down the ladder of human promotion and influence and takes the position of a servant and performs radical, subversive acts of love and servanthood and kindness. He elevates servanthood to a profound level. Servants aren't low. They're not uneducated. They're not less than. They're not weak. They're not subservient. They're not somewhere down the chain of human success, whatever image we carry when we think of the word servant. A servant is a person whose purpose for life has become other-centered. A servant is someone who's found the secret of life, which is to become other-centered, to push self out of the way and become other-centered. And as you consider another person's well-being ahead of your own, you follow the example of the creator of the world. That's what you're doing. When you put your immediate desire for lifting your own reputation and fame and influence second to supporting and serving others, you follow the example of Jesus. God is looking for a people who will humble themselves and be prepared to lose their reputation and status for the sake of loving him and serving others. And I want to suggest in a city like ours, a city of celebrity, of ego, of self-promotion, of influence, that our culture is absolutely desperate for the church to become this kind of people. He is calling us to live 
in a different economy of relational being that subverts, that undermines, that, 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 that by the nature of how we love each other, we expose the world's love as broken. That the world can see our acts of love and selflessness and, and, and how we love each other and go, wow, I want to be in that community. There's something going on in the midst of those people. That's the invitation of this story. It's to let Jesus kneel before you, to humble yourself, to recognize that we all carry dirt, that we all have dirty feet, no matter what shoes are covering them, to humble ourselves and let Jesus wash us clean. And then his encouragement is, go and wash others. Go and love others in the same way. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.